Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Thank you, Stanley. <laughs> the lone voice in the forest. The, um, it occurred to me only because there had been such a um, significantly wide and large gap between flying. Prior to uh, COVID-19, um, I, I was flying a lot. And uh, up until my last trip in Israel, it had been a considerable amount of time before I'd taken a flight of, of that length. And I was reminded that the flight going there is always a lot quicker than the flight coming back. And it's not only on an Einsteinian, Einsteinian kind of emotional relativistic level where the excitement of going somewhere, it obviously drags you, makes it feel faster, relatively speaking, than when you're coming back. But actually the flight is longer. And that in part is due to uh, the phenomenon of the jet stream and also when you're flying from east to west, you're flying against the rotation of the earth. <clears throat> and so as a result of that, a flight that takes nine and a half hours roughly from Toronto to Tel Aviv ends up being close to 11 hours from Tel Aviv to Toronto, which is all just a really complex way of me saying that I had a lot more time on the plane and I could only read so much and sleep so much that I ended up watching TV. <laughs> and one of the things that I watched was, which I've seen a gazillion times, was this movie with Meryl Streep called The Devil Wears Prada. Now, The Devil Wears Prada is a great story that has lots of interesting layers to it, great acting, an excellent screenplay, but there's one moment on it that I want to share with you, and that is Anne Hathaway, who plays this naive, impish, kind of intellectual assistant to Meryl Streep, who is the head of this world-famous fashion magazine. And uh, Meryl Streep is in this moment where she's trying to choose between which belt would look better for a particular shoe. And both of the belts, you should know, are a kind of a green. The only thing that actually distinguishes one belt from the other is the actual belt buckle. And as Meryl Streep's character, her name is Miranda, is trying to sit there and she's debating which belt to use, Anne Hathaway, who is not bought into the fashion panacea at all, begins to giggle and says, it's only stuff. And Meryl Streep's character turns to her with this dripping, intense, evil kind of sardonic reply says to her, you think this is stuff? And she scans her from shoes to head and says, that rumpled, you think it's a blue sweater, she says, but it's actually cerulean blue. <laughs> and the reason why that rumpled cheap sweater that you're wearing was made in some factory in Pakistan three years ago was because Yves Saint Laurent decided 10 years ago that of all the shades of blue that he was going to make his collection in, cerulean blue was going to be the headline of it. And then after that, Givenchy did it, and then Chanel did it. And so it was the decision of people like me, she said, that led that disgusting, ugly sweater to end up on your body. Really what she was saying without the theatrics, is that the world that we live in 
isn't just happenstance creation or reality of things that just happen to fall into place. The world that we live in is the byproduct of ideas. That things are that the way they are. That we have places where they are and we live in a certain way and we talk in a certain way. And the foods that we eat and the vacations we take, when we do take vacations, and the cars you drive, all those things are byproducts ultimately of ideas. So I want to give you another example, one that's not found in the movies, one that's more in the news. This past September, the United States, after almost exactly 20 years, withdrew from Afghanistan. And the reason why the Americans went into Afghanistan was because there was a cadre of people from the conservative political movement that we now call neocons, neoconservatives. They adopted a theory of world politic that was based upon a political scientist who first started his career at the Rand Corporation and then moved to the State, State Department. His name was Francis Fukuyama. Fukuyama, in the late 1980s, penned an article that became a lecture that ended up becoming a book where he termed the idea that we were quickly approaching the end of history. What was Fukuyama's premise? Fukuyama's premise, premise was that the United States, excuse me, that the Soviet Union would collapse. The United States would be the victor. And that the long, slow trend of political movements that would grip the world would be the spread of small L liberal democracy. Liberal democracies, Fukuyama said, do not wage war against each other. They compete perhaps economically, culturally, but liberal democracies do not wage war against each other. On an historical level, that is entirely true. And so he said that with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the liberal democratization of the rest of the world, that we would come to a moment in human history that would be the end of history, meaning the end of conflict, the end of war, the end of these clashes of great political movements, and that the only competition that would exist and remain in human life would be, once again, on an economic or cultural level. But the liberal democratic institutions would flourish throughout the world, bringing this great span of peace over all humanity. So the Americans, after, after September 11th, they said to themselves, what is the one last great holdout to liberal democratization in the world? They said, it's the Middle East. Fact is, in the Middle East, there is only one liberal democracy, and that's the state of Israel. That terrorism, the kind of terrorism that created September the 11th, all that could be eliminated if it became liberal democratic. And so they took the idea of Fukuyama, and what did they say? Invade Afghanistan, and then invade Iraq. Doing those things by making Iraq into a flourishing liberal democracy, what would that do? It, of course, would spread everywhere else throughout the Middle East, because everyone else would be looking at this flourishing liberal democracy with capitalistic markets, standard of living increase, education, tolerance, safe living, institutions, everyone would say, we want to live like that too. 
didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> and uh, the reason why it didn't work out that way is a long story that certainly we aren't going to go into. But when you read the newspapers of the Americans finally leaving Afghanistan, it was the long unwinding of a story that was not based on revenge for what happened on September 11th. It was the byproduct of an idea about how the world could be made. Which brings us to this morning. This morning is the second part of this ongoing remarkable tale of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. The story itself, as we know, because we read about it every year, both at our Seder tables and in the shul, in the synagogues, the story begins, as we know, with the Pharaoh. And a Pharaoh who declares something to happen to the Israelite people. It's important to realize and appreciate what Egypt was in the ancient world. When I was in Israel just a few weeks ago, if you walk out of Tel Aviv, you go north, and I don't mean a lot, actually. You cross over the Hayarkon River to go to the old northern part of Tel Aviv. And as you make your way up the Hayarkon River, there's actually, actually, that there's an archaeological site that told me the second that the Egyptian pharaoh had left behind. He built a gate there. What does that mean? It means that the Egyptian pharaohs, that the Egyptian empire, that it existed all the way from the very bottom of Egypt. I'm talking along the border of the Sudan, even further south than that, all the way to the middle of Israel, where modern Israel is today. That's an enormous empire. Egypt was the center of the gravity of the human civilization as we read about it in this morning's Torah portion. Everything that there was that existed in human civilization, by and large, went through Egypt. Egypt was the great military power. Egypt was the great economic power. And the great idea, the great idea that animated the empire of Egypt was the idea that the footprint and the power of God would be seen through the presence of one human being. And that was the Pharaoh. And it would be the Pharaoh who would decide who counts and who doesn't count. And in the Torah reading that we read last week, which is the beginning of the book of Exodus, and the Torah reading that we read this week, which is the ongoing saga of the Exodus, we read about the implementation of that idea. That the Pharaoh redeems, decides that this people will be slaves and these people won't. And that by choosing who counts and who doesn't count, the idea that animated the empire of Egypt was that the Pharaoh was a God who could decide those things by himself. The story that we read actually is a story of a clash of ideas. The Torah steps into this moment by telling us that that idea would not go unchallenged, that that idea would not be unabated. The Torah then introduces a different idea that would compete on the stage in the marketplace for the human imagination. And this is the idea 
that the Torah brings to the forefront. The Torah says as follows, that when Pharaoh declares that all the Israelite children who were born, the text actually says boys, but later Jewish commentaries say all children, that they should be thrown into the Nile River and killed. This is what we read. And the Pharaoh gives instructions to the Israelite midwives that they should throw the children, that he actually inscripted the midwives to throw them into the rivers. This is what we read. And the midwives feared God. And they did not do as the Pharaoh said. And instead, what did they do? They let the children live. The competing narrative of a big idea that we see in the story of Exodus is the idea that they would not fear a human being. But that these women, these midwives, what did they fear? Not the Pharaoh, because he was just a person. They feared God. And that the competing idea that would wage war against Egypt, seen through the plagues and all the other things, those is just the Sturm und Drung. It's just the drama surrounding the battle of these ideas. Man against God. Who counts? Who claims the right of a human soul? What direction do we go in? And these women stand up to Pharaoh. And they say, we're not afraid of you. Because we fear God. The ability to stand up against the tide of history and feel something greater is the great story that, the great idea, excuse me, that is animated in the story that we read this morning. But the ancient rabbis step into this idea and they give us a little bit more. They say that when you read and very carefully the Hebrew in the text where these Israelite midwives fear God and don't listen to Pharaoh and then they let the children live, the Hebrew expression is that they let the children live. And the ancient rabbis say that that expression, those words mean not only did they let them live, past tense, but but they will make them live future tense. That the great idea that the Torah brings to life for us this morning, seen in the hands of those few brave women, is the idea that the future of our lives will be determined by the holding on of that great idea. The idea that humans are made greater when we hear the voice of God. Shabbat Shalom.